0: You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by LifeYield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry.
1: Hello and welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. Our podcast is a series of conversations with industry leaders around the future of financial advice. And while we spend much of our time talking about how digital and human advice are coming together today and into the future, I like to speak with people who have a rich history in our business to gain some perspective on where we've come from and to have a better review on where it all leads. So today, our guest is a real difference maker in our business. He's a good friend, Lee Chertavian. Lee was uh, an early leader in the advisory space. He was the CEO of PlaceMark, a very sophisticated asset manager that was purchased by InvestNet seven years ago. Lee, thanks for joining us today. And uh, as you and I do from time to time, I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
0: As am I, Jack. Happy to be here.
1: So, Lee, you've been around for a bit, all around the advisory space, some interesting background. Uh, please share that with our, with our audience.
0: Sure, be happy to. You know, I got into the money management business right out of college. And then in between my two years at Harvard Business School, I was in the bond department of Fidelity and I had a great experience. You know, Fidelity was a much smaller, different company at that point, but they were really innovative, really uh, forward-looking. And it was a great experience, but I quickly realized I didn't want to manage money. You know, 40 years ago it was very different than today. You know, doctors ran hospitals and portfolio managers ran investment firms. And if you weren't going to be a portfolio manager, there really wasn't a place for you. I took a little segue from the wealth management, money management business, and I did what any good newly minted MBA did back then. I, I joined Bain & Company as a, as a management consultant. And Bain was a great experience. I often tell people I learned more in my two years at Bain than I did at my two years at Harvard Business School. But once again, I knew I didn't want to be a consultant for my life. I wanted to run something. Well, one of my managers had left Bain and gone to a a small private company called Transnational Group, and he pulled me over to work for him. And I had an excellent experience. I started companies in Canada, in the UK, in France, in Germany for them. And finally, came back to the US and started a mutual fund company. And that's what really sort of brought me back to the wealth management business. And it was, again, a great experience, but I quickly learned that uh, the fellow who owned that company was was not going to share equity. So I needed to find something else to do. In 1995, I became the fourth employee at a startup called Affiliated Managers Group. Many of you may know it now. It's a a roll-up of asset management firms. Yep. When I started, we had one affiliate and about a billion dollars in assets under management. And when I left five and a half years later, we had 15 affiliates, 92 billion under management, and we'd taken the company public.
1: And it was a great experience. That's great. So but from there, Lee, how did you wind up with Placemark? I mean, how did that all get started?
0: Well, I mean, it's a, again, a longer story, but I, I left affiliate managers group thinking I was going to start a company and then the market cracked. So there was no capital to be raised, and it wasn't going to happen for quite some time. And I got recruited into what was basically a failed.com called iExchange.com. That's what became Placemark Investments. Sort of a cross between an asset manager and a fintech firm. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, built that up and sold it to Invested in 2014. Uh, By that time, we had $16 in assets under management, nearly 50,000 clients, we were managing over 250,000 portfolios, making millions of trades every day through multiple clearing sources.
1: And a lot of what you did, as I recall, maybe explain for our audience, you were really an innovator around uh, taxes and uh, similar to what p- Parametric is today. Maybe make that compare and contrast.
0: Yeah. So we really felt there was a an opportunity to provide a higher level of wealth management, really around... The types of things that could be done for an institutional investor, bringing mm-hmm. that to the, the retail level, making yep. c- customized, individualized decisions. And that was much of what, what the company was about.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about Placemark and the team that you assembled. You guys were real innovators. So, uh, talk about sort of the role you played, because it was a pretty important role, as I recall. I lived through it and was a fan. We had many conversations while you were building up Placemark. Talk a little bit, if you would, about the Placemark's evolution.
0: Sure. A little, little history. So again, it was a fail.com. And when I first talked to the recruiter, I said, well, that's a, it, it, I should explain, it was a, a community of stock pickers. And they had lots of eyeballs and, and no revenue. And so when I first talked to the recruiter, I said, oh, that's silly. I'm not interested. And he said, Lee, would you just, just go talk to them and tell them what you think? I said, okay. Again, longer story. But what I realized is that they had three things that were important. One was they had a strong technology team. And I'm not a technology guy. I've been more marketing sales, product development, those sorts of things. Number two, they still had capital. They had raised their their last round of capital closed three days before the NASDAQ cracked in March of 2000. And they raised $20 million at an 80 million pre money valuation for a company that had no revenue. (laughs) Which you know, and they still had a decent we had about thirteen million left when I joined. So, you know, we were we knew we were going to need capital to get through the next two, three, four years before we raise money again. Yep, and yep. finally they had this little kernel of technology focused on managing taxes better. Yep, and yep. I'd been in the wealth management business long enough to know there was something we could do with that. I didn't quite know what yet, but I thought it was interesting.
1: So that brings us uh to frankly, what you turned into a very solid business and you had those capabilities uh, in place, capital and taxes and all the rest. But so you took it much further. I mean, PlaceMart became a real innovator, a real leader in the space. So at a time, uh, for our audience who may not have been around at the time, around turnkey asset management provider, you, you were at the sophisticated end of what that was and what that became.
0: You know, it's funny, Jack, but I think that People look at a successful company and say, wasn't that obvious? You know, it was obvious that was going to work. Why didn't I think of that? And and I don't believe that's true. You know, I spend a lot of my time in the private equity space now looking at companies and evaluating deals and all have trials and tribulations they go through. And it's my firm belief that every successful company is part lucky, but part smart. So for us, the smart part was managing taxes better. The lucky part was the rise of the unified managed account. So right, all right. these firms were sitting there saying, "I got to offer a unified managed account. How do I take all these different separate account portfolios that managers trade on individually? How do I put them all in one custodial account? Yep, we yep. had solved all those issues in order to enable the higher levels of risk and tax management. So you know, we went to the market selling this great tax service and we displayed it all all excited and, And the client or the prospect would come back to us and say, well, all I need is a rebalancer. Can you do that? And we'd say, yeah, we can do that. That's easy. And our business became enabling major full service firms to provide a unified and managed account for their advisors. And we'd start by doing the simpler stuff like rebalancing and cash flow management, and then little by little, uh, get them to understand more about what we could do with risk and taxes.
1: You know, I recall you and I did a an MMI conference panel thing as we, actually, I think we did many of them over time. I remember you and I talking about, I don't know if you recall this, you and I talking about the UMH. This is probably, shoot, 20 years ago, something like that. Um, and you guys were on the cutting edge of the UMA. And uh, I've always uh, contended, and we'll talk a little bit about UMH in a bit. But the UMA was always what the industry could come up with, given its capabilities of, at the time always desirous of managing the household. Any comment any, as you look back, and we'll talk about looking forward in a minute.
0: One of our board members said to me a lot when you know we get excited about some of these great features. He said, "Lee, remember, a lot of the pioneers get shot by the Indians."
1: You yeah. So, <laughs> so
0: it, you know, there's there's a lot that still can be done. But at that point, you know, when we were doing this 15 years ago, just getting getting a unified managed account was a challenge.
1: So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about what you're doing now. And well, first of all, why don't you describe what that is? Because I know you have a front row seat on where, what the future looks like uh, involved with the private equity firm. But why don't you describe that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I'm very fortunate because most of my career, I was on the operating side. And now I'm on the investing side. And I joined a company called longridge Equity Partners. They are a growth stage private equity firm focused on fintech. Uh, most of everything they invest in is, is fintech. So I help them look at deals and evaluate deals. And, and I also always am searching for deals, trying to understand what's going on in the market. So I feel really fortunate at this point in my career to have a very different type of, of uh, experience uh, and one that I'm, in, I'm enjoying quite a bit.
1: Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. What are you seeing? What, what excites you? What concerns you? Probably doesn't concern you so much as what's the opportunity out there? What, what, what are you seeing?
0: You know, valuations are high right now in the market. And that's, you know, we go through these cycles. And, you know, I, I like listening to the, the folks who have been doing this a lot longer than I, I have to hear about how these things go up and down. But we're in that sort of frothy stage of the market now. And it, it's interesting to watch how, you know, folks need to be disciplined if they're going to get the right return for their, uh, for their clients. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting to see the types of technology and the types of ideas people have. You know, I mean, just some of them are, are, are fascinating. And I think at the same time, there is a, you know, that, that same sort of, of hesitancy around let's not get too far ahead. You know, again, we can have a great, great product, but if it's too far ahead, the advisor's willing to take it on, the company's willing to take it, you know, then then it's not going to be a successful company.
1: So talk a little bit, if you would, about some of the issues I'm sure you're seeing around fee compression, around some of the trends in terms of fintech and wealth management as I call it the confluence of human and digital advice as, as FinTech comes together with, with asset management because at the end of the day, you got to have, have something to show for your whatever value you're trying to add. So talk a little bit, if you would, about what you're seeing.
0: So I'd say that uh, we're trying to get a view on where financial technology is going and you have to think about what's driving that, okay? So I've sort of boiled this down to about six different things that really I think are driving where things are going. Number one is certainly fee compression advisors simply have to handle more clients in less time if they want to maintain their income. So that's, that's a, a very key and relevant part. I don't think fee profession going away. It'll continue to get worse. I think there's been a paradigm shift in advice. It used to be you made a trade for the client that made a money, and then you went on to the next one and the next one, right? It was about making money. Now I'd argue it's about doing the best in the long term with the money the client has. And we have a group of advisors that have grown up in that first model. And we're trying to you know, bring them along to the second model. Some are making that transition well, and, and some aren't. Number three, it's the rise of the robos. I mean, look, look at you know, all these robos that have gone on. Is does that mean it's the end of advice? I don't think so, but certainly that's a big factor. Let's talk about product proliferation. I mean, years ago, it was stocks and bonds, right? That was it. Those were even pretty simple. Now you've got ETFs, UITs, you know, structured notes, contingent deferred annuities to say nothing about cryptocurrencies I think it's extremely hard for any advisor to really have a handle on all of those different things and to uh, to be able to advise clients across across that expanse of different types of products and finally I would add information has become ubiquitous and efficient so you know you used to go to an advisory because they had the information. Now you can get it anywhere online. Go look up a Morningstar rating and all the information on a fund. It's all there. And at the same time, the market has become so much more efficient because of information out there. And if there's a piece of information on a on a on a particular stock that comes out a news piece, the price adjusts within nanoseconds. You know, so it's a very different marketplace for an advisor to be able to show their value.
1: So I know you have a point of view on trends that are driving. Uh, fintech and wealth management—that this whole space. Why don't, you, why don't you share your point of view, particularly since you are talking to companies every day about where they're going, what they're trying to achieve. So, Phil, f- Sam.
0: Yeah, this probably isn't everything, Jack, but but three things that I, I think a lot about in the fintech wealth management space. One is about how do we enable advisors to make better decisions for their clients. Uh, we just talked about you know the, the product complexity they have to planning complexity is there and you know just like medicine's changed you know if you need a disc surgery you don't go to a surgeon you don't go to an orthopedic surgeon you go to a spinal specialist today well how can a advisor be a spinal specialist know all the different things that they need to think about and accomplish but we can do that with technology, right? We can help that advisor make all those different types of decisions. Mm-hmm. So I think really enabling advisors to make better decisions is critical. You know, as I mentioned before about Placemark, you know, when we got into it, unified managed account was hot. Now we're talking about unified managed household. I think some are, are doing a better job at that than others. But I believe we even need to go further. We need to consider a client's entire life stream. We need to figure out planning. We need to integrate with tax, not just the tax on the portfolio, but their whole tax situation in their life. And Mm -hmm. again, tech is the answer. And fortunately, so much data is becoming more digitized that we have the ability to bring that in, help the advisor make those better decisions for clients. And finally, the other one I'm thinking a lot about is financial fraud. And I'm not just talking about identity theft. I'm talking about ransomware, elder financial abuse, things like that. I just spoke to a firm a couple of days ago claimed that elder fraud, families lose seven times more money from elder fraud than they do from identity theft. It's mm-hmm. a big issue. And you know, as an industry, I don't think we're there yet. I, mm-hmm. I call it, pardon me, but password hell. All of us deal with password hell where, you know, you've got all these passwords, you're trying to keep track of, them, you forget them, they make you reset them every six months, yep. or even worse, they use double authentication. You're on an airplane, you need to get a code in your phone and, oh, the phone doesn't work. You can't use it. So right, right. I, I think we need to do a much better job protecting our clients uh, from that type of fraud. And again, I think technology is critical to enabling that.
1: Well, you, you have not disappointed with uh, sharing your perspective uh, on the rich history we happen to have shared in terms of being colleagues in the industry. What are three take, key takeaways that you you share with our audience, Some some things they should Maybe using their day to day of uh, building strategy around wealth tech fintech.
0: So I've probably hinted a little bit, bit at these, Jack. But I'd start with you know don't count out the importance of human interactions and human advice. You know, you and I, Jack, are old enough to remember when no load funds were going to take over the world and no oh, one yeah. would need an advisor anymore, right?
1: Yep. It absolutely. didn't happen. Yep.
0: And most of the research I've seen says that seventy to eighty percent of the people don't want to make their own decisions; they want help. Now, I have two friends who were you know, very high positions, a CFO and, and a CEO at, at uh, prominent financial firms. They don't want to make their own decisions. They don't feel they can do it. They've asked me, you know, who, who should they go to? Yep. So people still want to deal with people. And I don't believe millennials are different. I believe millennials are people, too, and they're going to have the same uh, predispositions and predilections that we all have. I'd say, secondly, life expectancy will continue to rise. When Franklin Roosevelt signed the Social Security legislation, average life expectancy was 64 years old. And so he set the retirement age at 65. Well, what's happened? Life expectancy today is 78 and a half years. And yet we've increased the retirement age by one, maybe two years if you're really young today. What does that mean? You got a real chance of outliving your money, right? And that's become even more important, more critical than it was before. And in fact, I think many of us are going to have to plan for Social Security just not being part of our retirement, that it just mm-hmm. won't, won't be there. So planning is even more critical and complex than it's than it's been before. And I guess the last point I would say is I think trust and independence will be critical. What's the fastest growing segment of the advisory market right now? Independent RAAs. And yep. these folks are doing it without a name brand behind them. How are they doing it? They're getting all this source of, of uh, new clients from referrals. Someone a person trusts is referring that person to an advisor they trust. It's yep. all built on trust. Yep. Does that mean you know it's it's doomed for the wire houses? I don't believe so at all. I think they could be in the best position if they can combine trust and brand. But yep. they have to be very careful of their brand. And some have been tarnished over the years. Yep. But if they yep. can truly show people that their advisors are independent, that they and their advisors can be trusted, they could be in the best position going forward.
1: Let me add another element. It's uh, trust and advice for sure, but you also have to integrate the technology, particularly around the household level and what you talked about earlier, going way beyond just cost and risk and tax. And those are all critical, of course, but much bigger than that. But uh, it really comes down to how you integrate and then make the user experience at both the client and advisor level so accessible, not unlike setting up a travel or a trip or what have you. It's got to be that kind of intuitive and easy. I would assume you agree.
0: I, I would totally agree. And you know, I told you, I may mean, mention before, I think one of the difficulties in what we had at Placemark was, you know, an optimization engine makes decisions that are not always easy to understand. And right. some advisors right. were hesitant to use it because they couldn't tell the client why a particular trade happened. I just viewed a, a company's website yesterday, a company we're looking to invest in, and they now have like a little cheat sheet next to each state's trades of of the type, the reasons why the trades were made. Those yep. are the type things we're going to use te- in technology. Just a small example of using technology to help advisors.
1: Well, one of the things that's been fun about this podcast is I have conversations with people like yourself that have different perspectives given who you deal with and so on. I had a it hasn't released yet. It will by the time probably this, this podcast comes out. But I talked to Dr. Daniel Crosby, who's a behavioral economist. And some of the work he's doing is fascinating around talking about cheat sheet. It's basically as people go to do the wrong thing, they're designing into their software, suggesting that might not be the best thing to do and suggesting an alternative as to what they might, might achieve. And I, I think we're going to see a lot more around the whole behavioral thing.
0: I mean, when your client calls because the market has just dropped, you know, three weeks in a row and you can instantly pursue some analysis about the last 10 times that happened, why that would have been a bad trade, yep, yep, you, know, you yep. will be much more beneficial than just trying to talk the motto on emotion.
1: Yeah, and I know you did this in your placemark days, at UMA, which at the time was what was available from a technology standpoint, and now as we move toward UMH, and we have a lot more to go, certainly we're early stage there, I, I think you'd agree. But the two critical elements are, are risk and tax, if you can get that right, and they impact each other, And So the whole idea is how do you look at the whole thing? Look at their bigger tax picture, look at their risk situation, where they are in terms of their age and longevity and all that, all that becomes, and it gets, as you, as you've mentioned a few times, it's highly complex. It's just not simple. It's not something the human brain can get their head around, especially when the emotions are, are, are rising. For sure. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. So as we uh, like to do each week, we, uh, talk to our guests about something away from their day-to-day of fintech, wealth tech, asset management, wealth management, all the rest. So what do you do outside of work that uh, is, uh, has nothing to do with what we just talked about that you do for fun or, or it's a you're particularly passionate about?
0: My daughter calls me the king of hobbies. So I do a lot of things. I ski, I golf, I hunt, I fish. But probably the thing people wouldn't know about me is that uh, my wife and I run a 16-horse boarding operation outside of Boston. And, you know, it's really funny because neither of us did anything with horses growing up. At about four years old, our daughter started with, Mommy, I want to ride a pony. (laughs) And it grew from there. And she took her horse to to Bowdoin. She took her horse to Harvard Business School and she kept riding. She's now 33 she, um, Fortune, lives about 15 minutes away from us and she still and, and has just had her first child. Uh, great. And so congratulations. Uh, thank you. So, um, you know, still rides very avidly. So uh, so we have this little horse operation. And before you ask, Jack, I'll get the, the answer. To the question I, I usually get is, do you ride? And the answer <laughs> is, well, I, I used to. I did learn to ride as an adult. But uh, about six years ago, I saddled up my wife's horse, took him to the field. He dumped me and I broke a couple of ribs. And so
1: now I now I confine my riding to the John Deere. They're a lot. And your your I gather your wife and daughters they're 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 members of your little uh, horse uh, operation.
0: Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth, our daughter is here almost every day riding. My wife has a horse that's fortunately very bottom-proof. She likes to to hack around and and they do a lot together. They go to shows and competitions and stuff. So
1: it's great. great. Well, as always Lee fun to talk with you really appreciate your perspective, not only historically speaking, because we lived through a lot of it together as friends and colleagues in the industry, but, uh, Love what you're doing now in service of what's next. I know you're, I think we share a passion for what's next and how can we make it available to more and and benefit from it for, for all, all concerned.
0: And Jack, I appreciate the opportunities. To talk a little and provide a few views. As you know, I I, I love what you guys are doing at Life LifeYield and, uh, and wish you all the success.
1: Yeah, thanks. This has been a lot of fun to catch up and much appreciated and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech On Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.